And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. You know, part of Catholic life uh, is devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And, you know, those of us who were spent many years within evangelical Protestantism, uh, some of us had to overcome objections uh, to the Marian dogmas. Uh, but even once uh, we found a biblical basis for the Marian dogmas, we had to struggle with the idea of, well, what about the biblical basis for Marian devotions? <laughs> My guest, Shane Kapler, uh, will share his own story of uh, dealing with those problems, and uh, the great fruit of that struggle is a book called The Biblical Roots of Marian Consecration, Devotion to the Immaculate Heart in Light of Scripture. Uh, Shane has uh, also published, and we've talked to him about his other book, The Epistle to the Hebrews and the Seven Core Beliefs of Catholics. For the last 35 years, he's been involved in evangelism and catechesis within the Archdiocese of St. Louis, and has contributed articles to a number of websites, such as Catholic Exchange and Epic Pew. He also sits on the board of the Institute of Catholic Humanism, an apostolate that's devoted to unpacking John Paul II and Benedict XVI's teaching on God and the human person. Shane, good to have you back here. Thanks. Al, it's always a thrill. Thank you. Well, let's let's tell your story, because uh, I, I really appreciate it. That I went from this this issue of dealing with the dogmas and that was fine, but then you have to deal with the devotions. So tell us a little bit about your own experience. Well, uh, starting out when I was in high school, that's when I really had a, a crisis of faith. Um, one, just is there a God? And the Lord, He reached into my life very mercifully, and Jesus showed Himself to me in a way that I could understand, and I knew that He really was the way, the truth, and the life. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as being part of the Catholic Church. Now, I had been born into a Catholic family, but my crisis of faith, um, nothing that I had received in Catholic school at that point, going to school in the 80s and and the catechesis at the time, prepared Mm me. Um, So when the Lord reached into my life, um, it didn't necessarily mean that I was supposed to be Catholic. Um, I started reading a lot of evangelical and fundamentalist uh, preachers and attending a non-denominational church in St. Louis. But as I got deeper and deeper into Scripture, one after another, these Catholic issues kept popping out at me. And uh, the Lord introduced me to some Catholics who were just on fire with the Holy Spirit and also incredibly Orthodox. And so slowly, over a seven-year period, the Lord is dealing with me on one Catholic issue after another. Mm -hmm. And so finally I'm just full-fledged. And I believe everything that the Church teaches about about the papacy, about um, tradition, the Blessed Mother. Mm-hmm. But then, exactly as you said, I come up to Marian devotion. Now, I, I understood the rosary and her intercession, but when I heard about being consecrated to Mary yeah. or consecrated to her Immaculate Heart, like we hear at Fatima, um, an apparition that the Church has uh, has honored. I mean, the popes have made pilgrimages to Fatima mm-hmm. and really brought it to the world's attention. But we hear Mary saying that to save souls from hell, God wishes to establish in the world devotion to my Immaculate Heart. Yeah. And that sounds like Mary's being put in the place of Christ. Sure. She is the source of salvation. And I heard about St. Louis de Montfort's book on true devotion and him talking about being consecrated to Mary 
to be more consecrated to Jesus. And what does all this mean? I mean, in Scripture, you only hear about being consecrated to God. Right. And so, um, so it really became a struggle for me. But I knew enough that um, people like John Paul II, they were clearly saints. Maximilian right. Kolbe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that they had this intense devotion to Mary, that they embraced this idea of consecration. So I was willing to hear it out. And just as the Lord had educated me on so many other issues, I was humble enough to be educated on this one, too. Yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> in really... Oh, I'm sorry, go no, ahead. No, no, I just, I just appreciate, I appreciate the steps that you went through there, uh, very similar to my own. So... Yeah, one of the books that I found most helpful was um, by Monsignor Arthur Calkins called Totus Tuus, and it's about John Paul II, his teaching on Marian consecration. Hmm. And he pointed out how Pope John Paul II uses the word entrustment as a synonym for consecration. Interesting. Okay. It starts to unpack that biblical data. So um, what I like what I like to do with people is to just talk about what is consecration in Scripture, mm-hmm. and it means something being set apart for God. So in the Old Testament, we have the altars, the sacrifice, and most notably the priests themselves. They are consecrated. They're taken out of common usage in the world and belong solely to the Lord. And then in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus, he talks about how God the Father consecrated him and sent him into the world. And we read in John 2 how Mary and Joseph bring him to the temple for that consecration of the firstborn. Then at the Last Supper of the Lord, he says to the apostles, well, no, not to them, he prays. He says, Father, for, they, for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be consecrated in truth. Jesus, in his death, in his Passover to the Father, he is gathering together his entire life, and entrusting himself into the Father's hands. And he does that so that in baptism we can be joined to him and make that same Passover to the Father. So that's consecration. And when we talk about Marian consecration, we have to recognize we're using that word in an accommodated sense. Mm -hmm. There's a similarity, but there's a dissimilarity. Just as we use the word Father, Ultimately, it's only true of God. Right. Only God is truly Father in the fullest sense. Right. But we can call the, the men who, uh, who are our progenitors truly Father because they cooperated with God in bringing us into this world. Yes. So they bear that t- title in an accommodated sense. When we speak of consecration to Mary, what we mean is entrusting ourselves to her motherly heart in motherly intercession, so that we can begin to share in her consecration to Jesus, which was total and complete, and we want to share her interior life with Christ. That, that's what we're really talking about at Fatima, where she says, devotion to my Immaculate Heart will save souls from hell. Yeah. Because we're wanting to enter into Mary's own relationship with Jesus, which is total and perfect, and that will save us. Elaborate on this idea of devotion focused upon the heart. Sure. Well, biblically, the heart is the core of the person. When we go through the Old Testament, it's the heart that decides. Uh, It's the heart that knows right from wrong, that prays 
that loves, it's the heart that God dwells in. And so when we talk about consecration of Mary's immaculate heart, again, we're coming to that idea of we want to get to the core of her relationship with God, to enter into her own interior life, her prayer, her surrender, her cooperation. We're asking the Holy Spirit to knit our hearts together with hers in the communion of saints and allow us to enter into her love of Jesus. So that's really your focus here is uh, looking at Mary's relationship to Jesus as a model for us. Is that right? Um, A model? But also, Al, I would say there's something more to it. Yeah. There is a supernatural union that occurs here. Um, And what I like to point out to people, because I know at one time in my life, the idea that, gosh, I mean, participating in another person's consecration of the Lord, how does that work? Yeah. Yeah. But when I was researching this book, I came across what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and he's addressing Christians that are married to unbelievers at the time. Yeah. And he says it's... This is a great passage. (laughs) It is, and it's shocking when we read it, um, especially if you're outside of the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. But he says, if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he still consents to live with her, she shouldn't divorce him because the unbelieving husband is consecrated through his wife (laughs) and an unbelieving wife consecrated through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. Yeah. And then Paul says, wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you'll save your wife? You and I know Paul's no theological lightweight. He, he recognizes <laughs> Jesus as the only source right. of salvation. But he also knows that in Christ's hands, we can be instrumental causes in the salvation of others by spouses helping one another to come to baptism, bringing their children there. And this idea of um, of entering into a relationship with someone that the Lord um, communicates His grace through us to work in their life, Paul develops that even more when he's talking about marriage in Ephesians, talking about Christian husbands and wives manifesting Christ's love for the church. And when we look at the relationship between husband and wife, they don't become idols to one another. Right. I mean, even though they're meant to lead one another to God, but um, they challenge one another. They pray for one another. They communicate God's love and strength. And that's what we're talking about with the Blessed Mother, that Jesus, part of his new covenant that he he forms at the cross, is to give us Mary as our mother to have a true spiritual maternal relationship with her. Yeah. So her motherhood is the foundation for all that the Church teaches about her. That's the foundational matter. Yes, and her motherhood is totally the gift of God's grace to her. I mean, this is is the greatest example of God in his pure gratuitousness and predestination choosing someone and, and appointing them, consecrating them, to a task and giving them the grace to carry it out. And so really no one could be more entrusted to Mary than Jesus was by the Father. And for us to entrust ourselves to her, in a sense, to her love and intercession, it's, it's a pale reflection of what the Father did in Jesus when he gave him to Mary. That's great. 
and really, this is, uh, I think, very important for. Uh, I mean, I think this is going to have uh, great uh, evangelical possibilities here, uh, because while we usually can make the arguments about uh, the Marian dogmas from Scripture, uh, we're still having to deal with the how odd the devotions are. And I think what you've given us here, Shane, is something that's really rich. And uh, I want to come back on the other side of the break and continue the conversation uh, and let you continue to unpack uh, what you've got here in this marvelous book, The Biblical Roots of Marian Consecration. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Coming up on Mother's Day, and we're taking advantage of this, uh, you know, civic celebration to take a look at the motherhood of Mary, which is really foundational uh, to how what all the Catholic Church has to say about her. Her motherhood is foundational. With me is Shane Kapler. He is the author of an outstanding book called The Biblical Roots of Marian Consecration, Devotion to the Immaculate Heart in Light of Scripture. What I'd like to do, Shane, is take take the example of the brown scapular. Uh, mm-hmm. We've had it 800 years, uh, and it's one of the signs of consecration to Mary that's popular. I grew up, in fact, I was raised Catholic, and I grew up with the uh, the brown scapular, and re-enrolled many, many years later, uh, once uh-huh. I was reconciled to the church. Um, it's a very simple garment. It's a miniature version of the religious habit worn by Carmelites. Got two small rectangles made of brown wool linked together on both sides by a cord. Okay, take that and go to the scriptures with it. Okay. Um, well, when we look at the Law of Moses, we see that Jewish men are commanded commanded to wear tzitzit, tassels, at the edge of their garments. Mm-hmm. And God says, it shall be to you a tassel to look upon and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart. And so Jesus, we hear in the Gospels, he has these tassels on his garment that are sacramentals. The sick, in faith, just want to touch them, and when they do, they're healed. Well, how did those tassels get on the edge of Jesus' garments? It was his mother who made his garments, who would have <laughs> sewn them for him. Mary yeah. put those tassels there, and they were sacramentals. And we hear about other sacramentals in the book of Acts, like handkerchiefs that Paul's touched being mm-hmm. taken to the sick, and they're healed. Okay, so the brown scapular that we wear today, it doesn't come about until 1251 with St. Simon Stock, the head of the Carmelite order, who said that he received a vision of the Blessed Mother, and she showed him the scapular and said that she wanted that to become part of the Carmelite religious habit. From that point forward, it would be a sign of their special entrustment to her and her intercession um, to keep them united with God through the moment of death into heavenly glory. Now, that idea of the scapular, it really does. It's a garment given to us by Mary just like the tassels on Jesus' garments were. Um, And it's for the same purpose, that we look to those, and we want to follow the Lord's will instead of our own heart. 
again, that's right at the core of who Mary is in her identity. Mm-hmm. As the one who says, let it be done unto me according to thy word. Yeah, yeah. Now, what does Elijah have to do with all this? Ah, thank you, yes. Well, the Carmelite order, spiritually, they trace themselves back to the prophet Elijah. Um, The Carmelite order started as a group of hermits gathering on Mount Carmel in the Holy Land, and they looked to Elijah, who, um, as a prophet, he had a mantle that he wore. It was made of, of course, camel hair. Mm -hmm. And Elijah, right before he's ascended into heaven, he says to his, his pupil, Elisha, is there anything I can do for you? And Elisha says, well, I want a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah <laughs> says, that's, that's a hard one. But if you see me taken, then your, your petition's granted. And Elisha does see him assumed into heaven in a chariot of fire. Well, what comes, what comes out of the sky but Elisha's mantle? It lands on the ground. And Elisha picks it up, and he uses it to part the waters uh, in front of him, and he passes over on dry ground. And he begins wearing that mantle in Elijah's place. And from that time forward, it seems to have become the garment of the prophet in Israel. So we hear John the Baptist, he dons a garment of camel hair when he's preaching in the desert. Yeah. He's a new Elijah. Elijah, Yeah. Yeah. So you've got this idea in the Carmelite order coming from Elijah that there is the the garment, the, the religious habit. And here's the Blessed Mother again giving this this addition to the religious habit to draw people's minds, again, to follow the Lord's will and not their own, and to unite themselves in prayer with her. Yeah, yeah. So you can you look upon this uh, the scapula as the garment she made for us. Exactly, exactly. And, and again, what we're doing is Mary... Well, Jesus is bringing us into the intimacy of his own family. Yeah. Um, you know, to, uh, yeah, I mean, for the Lord to be clothed in clothes that Mary made, and then for us to wear this, this sacramental as a spiritual participation in that. You know, it's, uh, I mean, you point out at the beginning of the book that um, Joseph, uh, you know, wasn't afraid to take Mary into his home. He already had uh, a relationship with God. He was also a spiritual man. But by bringing Mary into his home, uh, that enhanced his relationship with God. It deepened it. It made it more intimate. And um, at the close of the Gospel of John, or John chapter 19 anyways, um, you've got uh, the Apostle John taking Mary into his home. And... uh, I think this is, again, this is all, we live out, these are all prototypes of our own uh, relationship with Christ and with his mother. Yes, when Jesus, at the cross, he looks down at Mary first, and he says to her, woman, behold your son, indicating John, and then to the disciple, behold your mother. And it says, from that hour, the disciple took her into his own Idia is the Greek word, and we translate it in English as home, and that's fine. It can be uh, it can be an idiom for home in the first century, but it literally means into his own. Huh, and we know really? the way yeah. that John writes, and he has multiple layers of meaning yep. in these words. So 
Yeah, John took Mary into his home, but he took her into his everything that was his own, his inner life with Jesus, his apostleship. So when we read John's Gospel, and we see the way that John penetrates the mystery of Jesus differently than the synoptics do, um, we are experiencing the fruit of his maternal relationship with Mary and sharing in her Immaculate Heart. Um, Also, Al, it it strikes me that Jesus, after he does this, and it says he took her into his home, the gospel, right away, John says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. Hmm. And then after he has that drink of the vinegar, says, it is finished. So what he does with John and Mary there, that is part of this new covenant that he's creating, and he's establishing her as the mother in the family. This is this is true. Just is truly beautiful. So so let's let's take this next step, and that is that she's also mother of the Eucharist in this respect. So yes, tell us about that. Well, the Eucharist, as you know, is really the mystery of our consecration. Yep. That our desire is to be transformed into the Lord Jesus, and so when we receive Him in Holy Communion, we want to be His body and blood in the world. Well, the Blessed Mother, she shares in that mystery of the Eucharist. God took a cell from her body and transformed it into the humanity of the God-man. And so we're we're having a share in this mystery in the Eucharist when bread and wine are brought forward and God transforms them into the body and blood of Christ that we receive and then enter into the Lord's Passover, his death, resurrection, and ascension, which— The New Testament said that is his consecration to the high priesthood, his Passover, and that he now sits enthroned as our high priest. We are entering into that at every Eucharist. That is the mystery of our consecration, Hmm. and it has to be repeated and renewed and deepened. Just like the Lord Jesus himself, we have these multiple instances throughout his life on earth of him being consecrated to the Father, and it culminates in his Passover— so for us, we have to constantly renew this offering. Or like Scott Hahn said when he talks about Romans 12, that we're called to be living sacrifices. Yeah. And he says the yeah. problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps trying to crawl <laughs> off the altar. <laughs> right. and so that's why we have to do this, renew it every day. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the um, celebration of the Mass is, of course— the talk about the Eucharist as the source and summit of our faith. And uh, again, bringing it back to it's the source and summit of our faith. No, nothing is left behind when when we begin focusing on the Eucharist, when we begin recognizing that with the Eucharist, we have a door that opens to the kingdom in the power, the taste, where we can taste the powers of the age to come. It also swings the other way where Christ himself reaches down uh, and it helps us assimilate himself in, into our lives. But that isn't done apart from Mary. And I think this is, uh, again, Mary as mother of the Eucharist is something that I think many of us uh, can really uh, keep in mind in order to deepen and really in, in freshen, freshen our understanding of what's really going on at Mass. Um, so, uh, talk I agree, to, Alan. Go ahead. When, yeah. 
Oh, I'm just going to say that when I think about Mary in the Eucharist, too, I think of when, at whatever point she heard Jesus teaching on the Eucharist, her mind had to go back to the Nativity, because she's she's led from Nazareth to Bethlehem to give birth to him in a stable. Yes. In Bethlehem, the name itself means House, House of, of Bread. bread. Yep. And yep. where's the only place she has to lay him but a feeding trough for animals, yeah. a manger? So, I mean, the Eucharistic mystery is stamped into Mary's life and her experience of Jesus right from the start. Um, talk about the Daily Angelus. I know you deal with that uh, in the book. Oh, I love <laughs> I love talking about the Angelus because um, Jesus and Mary, as faithful first century Jews, would have stopped three times a day to pray. And that's exactly what we're doing in the Angelus. We are joining Mary and her wonder at the incarnation of her son, or in the Regina Chile here in the Easter season, of the joy of the resurrection. And that's three times a day that we're joining her in prayer, exactly as Jesus himself would have throughout his entire life. <laughs> I, I, just, I just love the way this all ties together uh, so beautifully. How, much, uh, how long did it take you to really kind of work through uh, this material. I, I've not seen it anywhere else, so I'm really quite impressed with it. Oh, thank you, Al. Um, Al, I guess I would say that um, for myself spiritually, it it took at least two years to yeah. work through. And yeah. um, and you know that when you sit down to write something and you, you want to research more and learn more <laughs> so that you can present it as well as you can. Right. So, um, and it was funny. I first sent out... Um, proposals to a few publishers uh, nine years ago, and nobody was interested in publishing really? on this topic. <laughs> really? And then, um, so for the eight years after that, I, it was still just on my heart. While I was writing other books, I was always gathering material sure. on the Blessed Mother and devotion. And, um, and then the Lord, <laughs> he actually let Tan contact me about a project. And when we were talking about it, I said, oh, by the way, I've got this book that I think would be perfect for you. And they were like, well, send it over. And so I showed them the intro in the first chapter, and they were like, yeah, let's do it. And, uh, and then um, it was about only like a seven-month process to write it. Yeah. I just felt driven. And uh, as I said, I'd, hate, I'd had eight years to assimilate yeah. well, all that's this great. material. Just needed to get it down. Well, let me thank you once again, Shane, and we'll make sure people get in their hands. Thank you so much.